People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. It's our weekly book show. And for the first half of the show, I'll be going through a number of books that I've read and enjoyed and been very impressed by. And in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by Viz Chetty and Jethro from Penguin Random House to hear some of the the great releases that they've got coming from their different uh, imprints this month and next month. Now, uh, also, in two weeks' time, on the 10th of November, I'm going to play a an interview that I had with Simon Sharma. He is the author of 17 books. The most recent, which has been released right now, is his volume two of the story of the Jews. It's called Belonging. He is uh, a world expert in art and in art history. He's a professor in both. He also lectures narrative nonfiction at Columbia University in America. He's made 40 TV documentaries. And his book, Belonging, as I said, this, the second volume of his story of the Jews, is an absolutely brilliant kaleidoscope tour through the years 1492 to 1900 in Jewish history. So that's something to look forward to on the 10th of November. Now, the first book we'll start from local in South Africa. And the first book we're going to look at is called The Way I See It, and it's by Jürgen Schaderberg. Jürgen Schaderberg is, was born in Berlin in 1931. While still in his teens, he worked as an apprentice photographer for a German press agency in Hamburg. In 1950, he immigrated to South Africa and became chief photographer, picture editor, and art director at Drum Magazine. In 1964, Schaderberg left South Africa for London. During the 60s and 70s, he freelanced as a photojournalist in Europe and America. He also taught at the New School in New York, the Central School of Art and Design in London, and the Hoch. Kunst School in Hamburg before returning to South Africa in 1985 for 22 years. His body of work, which spans more than 70 years and incorporates a collection of some 200,000 negatives, captures a wealth of timeless and iconic images that have been widely exhibited and showcased. Schaderberg, in partnership with his wife Claudia, continues to work actively on, made, on new major photographic projects, books and exhibitions, and to make his own silver archival hand prints. He currently lives in Spain, and this book, The Way I See It, is his memoir. He's an absolute icon of South African photography. It's in the, is an overview to his life. Many of the photographs are as familiar as they are iconic. Nelson Mandela gazing through the bars of his prison cell on Robben Island. A young Miriam Makeba smiling and dancing. Hugh Masakela as a schoolboy receiving the gift of a trumpet from Louis Armstrong. Henry Mr. Drum Nksumalo, the Women's March of 1955, the Sophia removals, the funeral of the Sharpeville massacre victims. Photographer Jürgen Schaderberg was the man behind the camera, recording history as it unfolded in apartheid South Africa. But his personal story is no less extraordinary. His empathy for the displaced, the persecuted and the marginalized was already deeply rooted by the time he came to South Africa from Germany in 1950 and began taking pictures for the fledgling drum magazine. In this powerfully evocative memoir of 
an international award-winning career spanning over 50 years in Europe, Africa, and the United States. This behind-the-scenes journey with the legendary photojournalist and visual storyteller is a rare and special privilege. Schaderberg's first-hand experience as a child in Berlin during the Second World War, where he witnessed the devastating effect of the repressive Nazi regime and felt the full wrath of the Allied forces' relentless bombing of the city, are vividly told. The only child of an actress who left her son largely to his own devices, Jürgen became skilled at living by his wits and developed a resourcefulness that held him in good stead throughout his life. At the end of the war, his mother married a British officer and immigrated to South Africa, leaving Jürgen behind in a devastated Germany to fend for himself. With some luck and a great deal of perseverance, he was able to pursue his interest in photography in Hamburg, undergoing training as an unpaid photographic volunteer at a press agency, then graduating to take photos at football matches. After two years there, Jürgen made the decision to travel to South Africa. He arrived at Johannesburg train station on a cold winter's morning. He had a piece of paper with his mother's address on it, his worldly possessions in a small cheap suitcase on the platform beside him, and his camera, as always, around his neck. The book is The Way I See It, and it is Jürgen Schaderberg, an iconic South African and international photographer. It's his memoirs. It's a powerful story, and there's just one passage in the book that I want to read. And it says as follows, Working with Africans. In mid-1951, I heard about a native magazine called The African Drum, which was looking for a photographer. I was told that they had no money and that it would be an unsatisfactory position because the magazine was about natives. Everyone told me it would be disastrous for my career. It was totally unacceptable for a European to be working with natives. Well, I disagreed. In fact, I thought working with the natives was an excellent idea, and so I went to the African drum office and offered my services. The office was on the first floor of an old building in the centre of Johannesburg. A door bearing the proud sign, the African drum, Africa's leading magazine, told me I had come to the right place. In one room, furnished with two desks and some filing cabinets, I found Bob Crisp, the proprietor and editor. Bob was a large man, a bit overweight and red-faced, and a well-known and celebrated South African cricketer. I introduced myself. When can you start? was his immediate reply. We paid ten shillings per picture used. Then he walked to the other desk where a black man in a bow tie was sitting behind a typewriter. Come and meet Henry, Henry Nksumalo, our chief journalist. Henry got up and greeted me with a big smile. I noticed his teeth were rather brown, which I would later learn came from smoking untipped cigarettes. He and Bob showed me some issues of the magazine, which was similar in size and style to traditional picture magazines in Europe and the States. However, in comparison, the layout, printing, and photos were extremely poor and, unsatis- and, and unprofessional. Later, I discovered that they were the only three people on the staff. That there were only three people on the staff: Henry, Bob, and an Italian lady who was the secretary and spoke poor English. I agreed to have a go. That's how Jürg, uh, Jürgen Schaderberg got his job 
at Drum magazine and then his photojournalism turned it into the iconic magazine that it came, it became in the history of South Africa. The book is The Way I See It by Jürgen Schaderberg, a memoir. He is an icon of South African and of international photography. It's published by Picador Africa. We'll be back with more books straight after this break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. The next book we're going to look at, two medical books. The first one's called Into the Grey Zone. It's by Adrian Owen and it's subtitled A Neuroscientist Explores the Border Between Life and Death. And the only way to really tell you more about this book is in the author's own words. See, this is from his prologue. I'd been watching Amy for almost an hour when she finally moved. She had been sleeping when I arrived at her bedside in a small Canadian hospital a few miles from Niagara Falls. It seemed unnecessary, even a little rude, to wake her. I knew there was little point in trying to assess vegetative state patients when they are half asleep. It wasn't much of a movement. Amy's eyes flickered open. Her head came up off the pillow. She stayed that way, rigid and unblinking, her eyes roving around the ceiling. Her thick, dark hair was cropped short, but perfectly styled, as though someone had been working on it only moments earlier. Was this sudden movement simply the result of automatic firing of the neural circuitry in her brain? I peered into Amy's eyes. All I saw was emptiness, that same deep well of emptiness that I had seen countless times before in people who, like Amy, were thought to be awake but unaware. Amy gave nothing back. She yawned, a big open-mouthed yawn, followed by an almost mournful sigh as her head collapsed back into the pillow. Seven months after her accident, it was hard to imagine the person Amy must once have been, a smart college varsity basketball player with everything to live for. She'd left the bar late one night with a group of friends. The boyfriend she'd walked out on earlier that evening was waiting. He shoved her and she toppled, slamming her head on a concrete curb. Another person might have walked away with a few stitches or a concussion, but Amy was not so lucky. Her brain hit the inside of her skull so hard it pulled it pulled it from its moorings, stretching axons and tearing blood vessels as ripples of shock waves lacerated and bruised critical regions far from the point of impact. Now Amy had a feeding tube surgically inserted into her stomach that supplied her with essential fluids and nutrients. A catheter drained her urine. She had no control over her bowels and she was in diapers. Two male doctors breezed into the room. What do you think, said the more senior of the two, looking straight at me. I don't know unless we do the scans, I replied. Well, I'm not a betting man, but I'd say she's in a vegetative state. He was upbeat, almost jovial. I didn't respond. The two doctors turned to Amy's parents, Bill and Agnes, who'd been patiently sitting while I observed her. A good-looking couple in their late forties, they were clearly exhausted. Agnes gripped Bill's hand as the doctors explained that Amy didn't understand speech or have memories, thoughts or feelings, and that she couldn't feel pleasure or pain. They gently reminded Bill and Agnes that she would require round-the-clock care for as long as she lived. In the absence of an advanced directive stating otherwise, shouldn't they consider taking Amy off life support and allowing her to die? After all, isn't that what she would have wanted? Amy's parents weren't ready to take that step and signed a consent form to allow me to put her in an an fMRI scanner and search for signs that some part of the Amy they loved was still there. 
an ambulance shuttled Amy to Western University in London, Ontario, where I ran a, where I run a lab that specialises in the assessment of patients who have sustained acute brain injuries or suffer from the ravages of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Through incredible new scanning technology, we connect with these brains, visualising their function and mapping their inner universe. In return, they reveal to us how we think and feel and scaffold the scaffolding of our consciousness and the architecture of our self and our sense of self. These equipments illuminate the essence of what it means to be alive and human. Five days later, I walked back into Amy's room where I found Bill and Agnes by her bedside. They looked up at me expectantly. I paused for a moment, took a deep breath, and then gave them the news that they hadn't allowed themselves to hope for. The scans have shown us that Amy is not in a vegetative state, after all. In fact, she's aware of everything. After five days of intensive investigation, we had found that Amy was more than just alive. She was entirely conscious. She had heard every conversation, recognized every visitor, and listened intently to every decision being made on her behalf. Yet she had been unable to move a muscle to tell the world, I am still here. I am not dead yet. Into the Grey Zone is the story of how we figured out how to make contact with people such as Amy and the profound effects for science, medicine, philosophy and the law that has become a new and rapidly evolving field of inquiry. Perhaps the most important we have discovered that 15 to 20 percent of people in the vegetative state who are assumed to have no more awareness than a head of broccoli are fully conscious although they never respond to any form of external stimulation. They may open their eyes, grunt and groan, utter occasionally isolated words. Like zombies, they appear to live entirely in their own world, devoid of thoughts or feelings. Many really are as oblivious and incapable of thought as their doctors believe, but a sizable number are experiencing something quite different. Intact minds adrift deep within damaged bodies and brains. I didn't delve into this new field of science with anything resembling a clear idea in mind of what I wanted to do. The beginning felt like a fluke, an offhand coincidence. Yet as I look back, it's clear that when we set the story in motion, that what set the story in motion points to the inner fabric that binds all of us together in ways that are monstrously complex and impossible to anticipate. My explorations into the grey zone emerged out of something dark and strange. This is Into the Grey Zone by Adrian Owen. A neuroscientist explores the, the border between life and death. And Adrian Owen's research has changed the way that we view people, or some people, in a vegetative state. It's a very, very interesting book looking at that grey zone. All the books that we've spoken about on the show and we're going to speak about until half past have already been posted onto the Facebook page, and I've also started something new this week. I've posted pictures of the covers of the books. So not only will you see the books and a little write-up on each of the books that we've reviewed, but you see the cover. So if you walk into the bookshop, you'll recognize it right there on the shelf. All you have to do is go to Facebook, then type in People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM, like the page, uh, register for alerts when I post new things and uh, when you go into the bookstores and you're looking for something to read just use the, the, the Facebook page as a resource so that you will always know what to 
what's good out there, what's good to read, what's good to buy. The next book I'm looking at is also a very powerful book. We're looking at really powerful books today. South African Photography, Into the Grey Zone, the... Um, the, the zone between life and death. The next book's called Reading with Patrick. It's a true story, and it's by Michelle Kuo. As a young English teacher keen to make a difference, Michelle Kuo took a job at a tough school in the Mississippi Delta, sharing books and poetry with a young African-American teenager named Patrick and his classmates. For the first time, these kids began to engage with ideas and dreams beyond their small town and to gain an insight into themselves. Two years later, Michelle left to go to law school, but Patrick began to lose his way, killing a man and facing a lengthy jail sentence. And that's when Michelle decided that her work as a teacher was not done, even though she was a lawyer and she had an internship in San Francisco. She began to visit Patrick in the Mississippi Delta, once a week, and soon every day, to read with him again. Reading with Patrick is a story of hope, friendship, and the power of books to transform and even to save a life. It's a true story, and before the book was published, Michelle Kuo wrote about this experience in the New York Times, and it became a very, very famous article in the New York Times magazine, was then written up in a much more lengthy format, which is the book that I'm holding in my hands right now. It's Reading with Patrick, A True Story. I think anyone who wants to experience the transformative power of books and how education and reading can bring hope to the darkest, darkest experiences. Reading with Patrick, A True Story is for you. Sort of an update on to serve with love, but this is it's a very very powerful it's a very very powerful book. It's my Michelle Kuo. She's the daughter of Taiwanese Chinese Taiwanese immigrants to America. She grew up in the American Midwest. Against her parents' wishes, she took two years off to go teach in between undergrad and postgrad to go teach in the Mississippi Delta, and then what happened there has totally changed her life, and Patrick's life as well. Ad break with a few more books straight after. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. The next book we're going to look at is also a local book. It's called One Life at a Time, A Doctor's Memoir of AIDS in Botswana. It's written by Daniel Baxter. When Daniel Baxter, the medical director of a large community health center in New York City, accepted an invitation to work in Botswana, he hardly knew where to find the country on a map. Yet he set out nonetheless, naively confident that he would do good by bringing his first world expertise to help in the rollout of Africa's first HIV-AIDS treatment program. But Baxter's good intentions were quickly overwhelmed by the reality of AIDS in Africa, his misguided altruism engulfed by the sea of need around him. Lifted up by Botswana's remarkable and forgiving people and by the country's majestic beauty, Baxter soldiered on. His memorable encounters with those living with HIV-AIDS, the unfathomable woes assaged by the oft-repeated declaration, but God is good, profoundly changed the way he thought about himself and his role as a doctor. Eight years later, when Baxter finally left Africa to return to the United States, he realized he was not so much the giver as the recipient of a great human gift. 
This book is it's called One Life at a Time, A Doctor's Memoir of AIDS in Botswana. The book is compelling, humorous, courageous, and often heartbreaking, and documents the extraordinary experience of a fallible but compassionate doctor working at the front line of HIV-AIDS in Botswana. This is it's a very, very Southern African story, and it's written with absolute honesty and unbelievable heartfelt feelings from a doctor who I think anyone in that position, all of us in South Africa, we feel overwhelmed by the by the, the human tragedy that is the HIV AIDS pandemic. Uh, it's a very, very powerful book, published by Picador Africa as well. A book that will resonate very strongly here within South Africa as well. Then the last book that I've got for today is called The Half Drowned King. And uh, now this is absolutely different from everything we discussed before. It's the first novel that we're looking at. Everything else was nonfiction. It's by Linnea Hartsaker, American. Uh, this is her debut novel and it's set in, uh, pagan Norway. Reads like a Viking game of thrones and it's based on true historical events that have been recorded in the the Scandinavian or the, the Norse sagas and the time frame that we're looking at it's pre-Christian Norway the country is broken up into a multitude of tiny little kingdoms each one ruled by a king Norway hasn't been united into a, 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 a one country and each valley is broken up from the neighboring valley by mountains or by uh, icebergs uh, or glaciers. And each small little area is its own polity and has its own king. So it really does have a feel of Game of Thrones because there are thrones to fight over. And it's the time in Norwegian history when a very, very young warrior, 16-year-old Harald, who is the nephew of a king and he is his uncle's heir to the throne, has a vision of uniting all of Norway under one king. Harald's mother is a sorceress. She's had a prophecy when he was born that her son would unite all of Norway. A large part of the strategy behind the society in this book is the maneuverings and the alliances being made to support or oppose Harald, this young warrior, in his bid to become the king of Norway. But the story actually doesn't center around him. He's very important, but the story mainly centers around a young man, Ragnvald Eisenson, Einsteinson, whose grandfather was a king in a small area in Sochen, a small area in, in Norway, and his father basically squandered his kingship and was killed by a, or died in the, uh, we're not sure if he was murdered or if he was just killed by Another man, Olaf, who has now taken over the kingship or the leadership of Sochen, and Ragnfeld has been denied his inheritance, the king of this area. And he, the very, very beginning of the book, he is 
drowned. He was, he's on a raiding ship going, they're coming back from Ireland where they've been raiding to the Norwegian coast. And the leader of the raid pushes him out of the boat and tries to kill him. He does survive that experience. This is the very beginning of the book, but because he was an attempt at drowning, he's called the half drowned one. So the nickname that he's been given, he's Rachenfeld, the half drowned. And then from that moment onwards, the book, with all of the tensions implicit in Norwegian politics at this stage, with this Game of Thrones, the attempt by Rachenfels to regain the family's royalty, and all the alliances he has to make, all the travails that his family have to go through in order to regain their former glory, their former kingship, that all now comes into the into into the story. It's very very exciting. And it's very, very realistic. It's based on a fortune of research. And the interesting thing is that the author, Linnea Hartsaker, is actually a direct descendant of Harold, the person who actually, in the end, well, it doesn't happen in this book, but the historical record shows that Harold does unite all of Norway. So one of his descendants is the author of this book. It's late 9th century Norway. Um, so we're dealing, living in the 800s But Christianity hasn't come into Norway yet But an interesting thing The research in this book is so it's, it's so realistic It's so well incorporated into the book That you do see all these trade patterns Between the Norwegian kingdoms And then continental Europe And the raiding parties to London or To England, to the Shetland Islands The Faroe Islands All the way to Dublin and Ireland You see the, the value given to um, artifacts that come from very far away from Norway. This is mentioned even made of Constantinople because Viking tentacles got all the way to Constantinople. There was a Viking kingdom in, deep in what's now Russia in Kiev. So all of these different aspects of the world at that time also make uh, an appearance here within this book. So the research is brilliant. It's based on the true history, but it's been novelized. Characters have been made up in order to flesh out the story, but it is a very, very, very good recreation of Viking life in the 800s. So that's all the books that we've got to for today from our part of the show. My visitors are arriving in the studio right now for the second half of the show. Everything that I've mentioned has been posted onto onto our Facebook page. Go to People of the Book on 101.9 High FM and you'll see all of our books and whatever our guests Viz and Jethro discuss in the second half of the show, I'll post on the website over the weekend so that all of those will be um, accessible to everyone. And then just remember, in two weeks' time, I'll be on the show and I will play the interview that I've done with Simon Sharma, the author of Belonging, the second volume of the story of the Jews, and that is an unbelievably brilliant book. The, 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 it, it's a wonderful interview. Simon Sharma is, as I said, the author of 17 books, history books. He's a professor of history and art history. He's made 40 BBC documentaries. His documentary on the history of Britain has become the BBC's best-selling DVD series of all time. So that's something to look forward to. But Right now, welcome Jethro and Viz. It's great to have you back in the studio. <laughs> I know that your books are fantastic. The list that you have from Penguin and from Random House. And I just want to sit back now and enjoy hearing from you what we can all read for the rest of the year. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us back. Yeah.
Okay, um, I suppose I'll go first. Um, so yeah, the big one that's just been released is um, 65 Years of Friendship, uh, George Bezos, his um, memoir of his friendship with um, Nelson Mandela. Um, there was a launch last night at the Apartheid Museum. Yes. Um, Fister, did you manage to get there? I yes. unfortunately missed it. Oh, no, I did, and it was an amazing um, exhibition because they, they sort of opened the exhibition, but also they talked about the book, and he signed every single person's wow. book there. It was amazing. And he's, he's 90. He's almost, almost 90 years old. Yeah, yeah he's something else. Eh? Yeah, <laughs> it's incredible. Um, you know, this, this book is absolutely you know amazingly written. Um, he goes into how they used to... Um, sit at a little coffee shop called the Little Swallow in Commissioner Street. Um, how they would debate philosophy and news on history. Um, it's the only place that um, they could actually sit together without the cops, because um, at that point, you know, um, blacks and whites couldn't. Yeah, you, you couldn't be seen eating together. So, um, yeah, the owners, um, you know, they turned a blind eye. And um, oddly enough, it was actually across the road from a police station. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's 65 years of friendship. 65 years of friendship, yes. Um, then the other big local one is The Law of Nutrition uh, by Tim Noakes and Marika Sporos. Um, yeah, Tim Noakes, he's almost always in the news. Um, yeah, he's just been acquitted. Ugh, um, yeah, he was found not guilty in his trial. Um, so this this book, it's going to go into um, partly into um, how he dealt with the trial. Um, and why he um, why he believes in banting so much, um, and also the main part is uh, the science behind banting, um, so you can actually see you know why this why banting is you know good for you. So um, it's both it's both his personal story and the reasons why we should follow his diet. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's also going to be a great read. Um, then the other big one, uh, which was also released earlier this month, was Origin. Uh, by Dan Brown. Um, yeah, that's the fifth um, Robert Langdon. Um, he's now, um, he was about to uh, see a, ah, sorry. There's a, uh, he basically is contacted by one of his uh, students. Yeah. Who was a very talented student of his. And, uh, you know, they go back way, way, way back. So this guy invites him to um, Spain where he lives and he says you need to come to Spain I've got this m- amazing discovery which I've made it's going to turn science and religion on its head and uh, Robert Langdon goes there and there's this massive elaborate presentation and it's amazing and then things go very badly from the presentation onwards uh, I don't like to give too much of the plot line but what I can tell you is that it's it's your classic Dan Brown he, uh, he he's just amazing in terms of what he puts into his books and how he, how he sort of meshes in real places Real art, uh, real artists into his uh, fiction, which is brilliant. Yeah, I think he said all of the all of the science in the book is actually based on fact. Yeah, everything. Yeah. yeah. So as much as the critics like to pan Dan Brown, but <laughs> he's too much of a presence to ignore. Yeah. His books are very exciting. 100%. And can you afford not to know what everyone else is reading? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you all the stores that I've been to this week and last week. They all are saying this book is sitting number one. It's really doing well. And then it is a great read. Dan yeah. Brown gives you uh, an undeniable great read yeah. for the few days that you haven't, you're still reading it because you can't yeah. take, you can't spend too much time. It's just too exciting. Yeah. He yeah. gives you yeah, great you value. Sit down, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Then, um, nonfiction, uh, The Four, uh, by Scott Galloway. Um, this is going to be one of the big business books, um, of, 
the, the remainder of this year and next year. So he basically goes into the four, what he calls the horsemen of the apocalypse in business. Um, the first four businesses to actually be worth a trillion dollars. Um, Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon. Um, this is an absolutely fascinating read. Um, he, he's not afraid to call a spade a spade. Um, <laughs> some of his, his, his language that he uses, um, is not repeatable on radio, but, um, yeah, it's, it's really, really good. And he also talks about, um, who could possibly be the fifth one? Um, it may be, um, Uber or Airbnb, you know, some of these startups. So I've read the book and I actually, I have to give, I should give a whole hour to the book because you just can't do justice to the book yeah. without that. I also, when I'm, before I review the book, I'm going to post a video of Scott Galloway talking about this topic on the Facebook page as well because that's also, it's just awesome just to hear him. But the book's so much more than any video that he can give. You say, it, it, it I agree with you. It is the most important business yeah, book absolutely. that you can get your hands on. He actually says in one of his videos that MBAs these days in America are two years. The first year you do the basics of business and the second year they fill it out in order to make it a, a, a longer course. Mm. He says he would scrap the whole second year and just teach the four. Just <laughs> teach everyone about how Google, Facebook, Amazon and Apple run their businesses because that's what you need to know to get ahead in business today. Yeah, sure. So that's a vital, vital book for the world of business. Okay, yeah, then we've got uh, Bear Grylls, um, his new one, How to Stay Alive. Um, so this is Bear Grylls um, back writing what he's well known for, um, survival. But what's really nice about this one um, is that it's not just surviving in the wild. It's got um, everything from, you know, basic car maintenance, um, how to change a tire, um, how to tie knots, mm. how to, um, uh, if you've got an abandoned vehicle, um, how to survive tire blowouts and brake failure. Um, and then it even goes up to things like surviving a shark attack. So it's literally um, almost... All types of survival. It's really, really comprehensive, and also a great, entertaining read. Um, yeah, it's rules. not a very, it's not a very thick book. It's, it's um, an easy this is read. this is actually just the sample. Okay. So the actual book is going to be quite thick. Yeah. Okay, okay. So that's your one stop. How to stay alive? Yeah, <laughs> and and it's the guy who's lived out there in extreme conditions. Yeah, I think this has actually met the guy. Haven't you? Uh, no, no, haven't. Oh, no, okay. no, I haven't. But this one I was also looking at, and it's sort of, you, you can basically learn things on how to stay alive, not just when you're out there in the wilderness, but like things can happen in your flat, things can happen when you're out in public, you know what I mean, how to survive those situations. So it's quite, quite yeah, interesting. Very, very, cool. yeah. very, very practical. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, then the last one I'm going to talk about is one of my passion picks, um, Artemis by Andy Weir. Um, this, it's not a sequel, but it's also a standalone, but the follow-up to The Martian, which is obviously a major movie starring Matt Damon. Um, so in this one, we've got uh, Jazz Bashara. Um, she lives on the moon. Um, and this is all about how she's um, kind of down in the dumps, um, really struggling to get money, and she's about to try pull off a major heist on this moon. Um, it's also really, really... Um, you know, the, the dialogue is nice and snappy, the same as, um, the Martian, um, and the, the scientific, um, prospects in it. Um, you know, what he can actually teach you, um, about the moon is just absolutely fascinating. Very similar to the, to the Martian, but still an absolutely fantastic read. That's Artemis. Artemis, yes. You also have another book by, um, by, by, uh, Lee by, Child. 
No, 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 by an, ast- 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 an astronaut, Scott Kelly. Yes. Oh, Scott Kelly, yeah. yeah. He once, just... you, once you're mentioning Artemis, we have to mention the Scott <laughs> Kelly book as well. I think that's the one I talked about the last time I was here. Yeah, so that's yeah that was Endurance, yeah. Endurance. Endurance. It's yeah. also yeah. a fascinating read. It yeah. almost reads like a sci-fi novel. <laughs> um, it's really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. he's very smart, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I find space... The final, it's the final frontier. It's oh, yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's there's a science fiction book that that Random House has. That's Art, that's Artemis by Andy Weir. Yeah. And I think the margin's still selling. And oh, yeah. watching, if you ever watch the movie, you have to watch it. But then also Endurance by Scott Kelly, which is actually nonfiction. It's a it's a biography. Yeah, it's all about his time in um, his year on the International Space Station. So that's also a very very great read as well. Yeah. Okay, we'll be back with this. Yep. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. Uh, we in conversation with Viz Chitty and Jethro from Penguin Random House. Every book that I've mentioned on the show has been posted onto our Facebook page. You go to Facebook, then search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. All the books that we, we're mentioning in the second half, I'll post over the weekend. So the the, 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 the titles will be there. Some of them I am still going to mention on the show in the few in weeks coming. So if I've piqued your interest, just keep listening to the show so that you can have your interest really over, overwhelmed with the desire to run out and buy the books. Viz, what have you got? <laughs> okay, thanks, Steve. I've got I've got quite a few uh, today, not too many, but uh, some really good ones coming out. Um, I've pulled up some of the stuff that's coming out very soon, so October, mostly October releases. The first one is Quiet Before the Thaw by Alexandra Fuller. Uh, I've just finished this one. Uh, people might know her from the great memoirs that she did in the past, and uh, you know she used to live in Southern Africa in, in uh, Zimbabwe, uh, and now she lives in the States. She married an American gentleman, and she now lives in the States. Uh, she'll be in the country next year. Now, this book, uh, she spent three months in South Dakota on an Indian uh, reservation, on a Native American reservation, researching for the book. And um, so in the book, you'll find a lot of Native American uh, philosophies and that kind of thing. So it reads really quick. I mean, you go through it very, very quickly. Uh, and the story is set around uh, two cousins uh, who grow up on the reservation. Uh, they've come from... Broken families, sort of their fathers are just passing through the reservation and they sort of don't have father figures and they're raised by their grandmother, in fact. Um, so they basically look at life in, in a very, they both of them look at it in very different ways, which makes it interesting. Uh, one ends up fighting in Vietnam. Uh, he's sort of is committed to his cause and he goes to Vietnam and he gets injured really badly. He comes back to the reservation and he just sort of goes and lives on his own. And the other, he sort of flees conscription. He swallows the three bags of sugar and then they say, you're a diabetic, you can't really fight. So he flees conscription and he ends up in the north of the reservation, like doing his own thing. And eventually he comes back down and he, and he becomes a sort of politician on the reservation and he gets some sort of, um, he becomes this political figure. But he's corrupt, you know, and he sort of abuses the system and the money and everything. And he goes off the rails and somehow he ends up in prison. Um, the other brother, after he comes back, for, uh, the cousin, sorry, he comes back from the war, he lives on a reservation, um, and he becomes a sort of medicine man or uh, an elder of sorts. So people go to him when they need something, you'll get tourists coming in and go, they go see him. Um, so it's a really interesting take on how they view the world, how they view what's happened to them, uh, politically, uh, how much they've suffered. Uh, so it's it's quite an interesting book. Um, it's classic Alexandra Fuller. She's got a pattern going. Yes. She had memoirs of growing up in in Zimbabwe during the the, the 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 wars, and then after she moved to America, 
she was ex- after her first book came out, she became a literary darling yeah. of the American literary set, yeah. and she's published short stories and articles, well, articles in the New Yorker. Yeah. But she lives out in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming. But she's really made Wyoming her territory, because yeah. she's telling she's the stories of that part of America now. Yeah. But and but she, but like almost these like damaged people, yeah. but these people who are pulling together, living off the earth, and that, she did that in, for Southern Africa also, not yeah. only in her memoirs of her family, but scribbling the. Which was about a, a mercenary, I think, in, in Zimbabwe and in Zambia. Yeah. So this is classic Alexandra Fuller. It's interesting that you say damaged people because I can promise you, there's not one character in that book that's put together. <laughs> Every single one of them are damaged people in their own way. You know, they have their own views and things and how they see the world, but it is slightly warped. Everybody is slightly warped, and I think maybe that's the point. But it's really fascinating to see how these people actually see the world. It's amazing. She's looking at the human condition through that prism. Yeah, yeah. But she writes fantastically well. Yeah, she, it's a beautifully read, uh, written book. Yeah. The next one is a non-fiction title. It's Runaway Species by David Eagleman and Anthony Grant. Uh, fantastic book on anybody interested in neurosciences. Um, but it also particularly talks about creativity um, in the human uh, aspect and how we sort of have probably the only species that are as creative as we are. Uh, he, they talk about things like, um, let's just say, if you look at species on the earth from barnacles to apes, they sort of they still they're evolving, but it's very slow, and they still carry on, mostly carrying on with business as usual. Whereas us, we have evolved at a tremendously rapid rate, and they want to know how that's possible, and they basically analyze that. So it's a it's an astounding book on on neurosciences and, and creativity in in the human spirit. It's wonderful. So neuroscience and creativity. We yeah. I did a neuroscience book earlier, so <laughs> this is an area an area of great interest. I, I think I know it public. is fascinating, and they look at the last ten thousand years, and they say that the amount of it took a million years from the time that man discovered fire to discover the wheel. That that's a million years, and then the, it sort of traces down from then to then, and it gets shorter and shorter. And as you know, like if you look at the last ten years in technology, it's just leaps and bounds and leaps and bounds. That's the runaway aspect of that's the runaway. It. Yeah, species. it's just going, and then they go, "Where are we going from here?" Which is very interesting. Uh, so that's a runaway. And also, species. will appeal to anyone who's read Yuval Noah Harari as well. Oh yes, yeah, okay. uh, to be sure, that's hundred uh, percent. The next one I might have touched on the last time, but I thought I'd briefly touch on it. Too. Today. Uh, it's Mythos by Stephen Fry. Uh, it's a basic uh, retelling of the Greek myths uh, by Stephen Fry. He's a wonderful storyteller and a writer, and I think that cu- these stories coming through him is going to be very entertaining. So that's Mythos by Stephen Fry, and that's out on the 27th of October as well. Right. Then another one. Um, this is one for uh, women's fiction, Some Kind of wonderf- Wonderful by Giovanna Fletcher. This one's out on the 14th of November. Uh, and it's about a young couple who get together at university. They have this lovely relationship for 10 years. And then, um, out of the, out of the blue, the, uh, the, the man in the relationship says, let's go to Dubai for a weekend away, you know, get some time together. They go off. She thinks she's getting proposed to. She ends up there in Dubai and a couple of days. And then next thing you know, he tells her he's not sure if he wants to be in the relationship. So our main character is at a very, very, um, she's in a dilemma now in terms of her relationship. So she starts to rethink her whole life. Uh, so I will say women's fiction, they'll really enjoy this kind of thing. Holiday reading. And also great for book clubs. Yeah. Fantastic for book clubs. Right. Then the next one is Sourdough by Robin Sloan. She gave us an amazing book a while back called uh, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore. Oh, great book. <laughs> now, uh, in this one, we've got a main character who's a computer programmer by trade. So she lives a fairly boring life. Uh, she gets to work. She does her work. She comes back home in the evening. She orders dinner from this sort of hole-in-the-wall restaurant uh, close to her flat. 
And thereafter she just sort of has supper and then it's the next thing the next day. So, so one day the guys who own this restaurant get deported. <laughs> so their visas expire and they get kicked out of the country. But before they go, they say to her, listen, uh, we need you to carry on with it. So we're going to give you all our recipes. And, uh, and they, and, and she basically starts baking. She starts baking. She takes it to work. It becomes a big hit at work. And then she has a friend at work who's a chef and he tells her, you know, you could make some good money out of this stuff. If you take it to like the farmer's market, you could be really uh, successful there. So she decides to take it. Uh, she goes to the market, but when she gets there, she realizes that the people who are at the market already, it's quite political and they don't want, want uh, her in, uh, which makes it quite interesting and funny. So it's classic Robin Sloan and that. Uh, this is this is uh, San Francisco, yeah. And then you've got you've got two very interesting things. You've got RT, yeah. You got artisanal food, <laughs> and they intersect <laughs> in sourdough. It's so interesting. If it's yeah. anything as good as Mr. Penumbra's twenty-four hour bookstore, it's we are. Everyone needs yeah. to run out and buy. <laughs> yeah. We'll be back with a few more books right after this ad break. People of the book on one hundred one point nine High FM. Okay, in people of the book, we're talking books with Viz and with Jethro. We're looking at books coming out from Random House at the moment. And everything that's been spoken about up till now, I've posted my books on on, my, on the Facebook page already. Whatever we've discussed from half past all the way till just before 12, I'll post on the website during the weekend. So just keep going to Facebook, search for people of the book on 101.9, and then when you go shopping for books, just use us as your ultimate guide to make sure that the next book that you read will be as great as the one that you've just finished reading, and then the one after that just as good as this one as well. Viz, what else? Okay, Steve. So the next one we've got is um, a really, really good uh, book for book clubs as well. Uh, it's by John Banville. It's called Mrs. Osmond. Uh, he gave us the C a while ago, which he won the Man Booker Prize for. Um, so in this one, it's it's not unlike uh, Portrait of a Lady by Henry James, which is a classic. Uh, so we've got a, a main female character. She's married to a wealthy Italian, uh, and she lives in Italy. Um, and then... You know, she sort of has this, she knows that her husband's cheating on her, so she's not having a really good marriage and a good time. Uh, so one day her cousin, uh, a very close cousin of hers, gets uh, sick and she goes back to London uh, to just to be at his bedside. And when she gets there, she starts seeing old friends and her life and how it used to be. And uh, she starts to wonder if she'll ever want to go back or if she, should she go back. So it's a great book for book clubs. And John Banville writes really, really beautifully. Uh, and this one, he doesn't let us down with that. It's literary, literary fiction. Quite literary fiction, yeah. yeah. Right. And then the next one is also another nonfiction book, um, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. I don't know if you've read this one. I don't know if I've actually given you a copy. No, but I've so. seen it in the catalog, so I'm actually interested in the topic. That book, it's uh, he's a PhD. Uh, this is the first book by him, so it's a it's a brand new. Uh, it's the only book that he's ever published so far. But it is so scary <laughs> to put it to put it mildly. You read this book, and I promise you, you he tells he talks about sleep, but you lose sleep worrying about not sleeping. That's how bad it is because uh, he educates people on exactly what happens when you sleep and how there's a massive sleep deficit, and he even equates it to things like uh, people's temper these days and, and, and road rage and all those things can lead back to lack of sleep you know what I mean and, and anger so how much do we need how much do you um, well he recommends needs? between 7 to 9 hours a night which is which is what we've been told for years but but now the way things are and how quick the economy is now people's jobs are uh, I think people are probably getting between 5 and 6 hours on average a night I know I do uh, so, so much less than we need I know yeah so it, and, and he says you can't get sleep back the thing the thing is 
with sleep is once there's a deficit, you can't make up for it. But which, we can't crash on the weekend for three no, hours. No, that doesn't. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. So he says like this deficit grows and grows, and you can never pay it back. It's terrible. Uh, so he goes into the the proper science behind sleep and why we should be sleeping more, uh, what happens when we sleep, and how it affects our emotional life as well. It's a whole lot of stuff, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, so this is a fantastic book by Matthew Walker, debut book by him, 27th October, Why We Sleep. Time for one more book, then okay. we'll be finished. Fantastic. Uh, the last one I've got is also a really fantastic book by Tana Hisi Coates. Uh, he's a fantastic journalist. He wrote for the Atlantic for many years. This book is called We Were Eight Years in Power. Uh, it's coming out also on the 27th of October. Uh, it's eight essays that were written originally in the Atlantic, which are now published in the book. And it is eight years of uh, Barack Obama's time in office. And it's, it's brilliant essays on each year that he was in office. Uh, so this is by Tana Hisi Coates, fantastic author. And he's, a, he's an author to watch because he's, yeah. he's critically reviewed extremely well in He's probably a commercial success as well. Yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a speaker about race issues. Yeah, he talks a lot about that. Too. So that's our show for today. Next week, we'll, I'll be back on air. And then, as I said, in two weeks' time, I'll play the interview that I've recorded with Simon Sharma, professor twice over, once in history, once in art history. He lectures at Columbia, and the book is Belonging, the second volume of The Story of the Jews. If you haven't read the first volume... Go and read it now before the interview, and then you can buy the second book as well. It's a great interview. I'm looking forward to sharing it with uh, with all our listeners on there. For everybody listening, uh, this Shabbos is the Shabbos Project. Have a great Shabbos. You're going to join at least a million people around the world actively keeping Shabbos together. We're all keeping it together. And then keep reading, and I'll be back on here next week.